0: This is the 24th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society for Hematology. This podcast covers the guideline on the monitoring and management of iron overload in hemoglobinopathies and rare anemias. This podcast is being recorded over Zoom due to the ongoing COVID 19 pandemic, and we apologize for any loss in sound quality that may occur. My name is Dr. Siobhan Pancham. I am a consultant haematologist in the West Midlands managing patients with thalassemia for over 16 years. At the time of writing of the guideline I was the British Society for Hematology representative on the task force and have been actively involved in other national guidelines. With me today is Dr. Farah Shah who was the lead author for this guideline and who has extensive expertise in managing thalassemia.
1: Thank you, Siobhan. Um, my name is Dr. Farasha. I'm a haematology consultant at the Whittington Hospital and I have looked after the thalassemia patients at the Whittington since 2004. I have ex- extensive experience in the management of iron overload and complex patients suffering with um, hemoglobinopathies requiring iron chelation
0: this guideline will be covered in three sections. The first section will deal with the diagnosis and complications of iron overload. The second section will cover the medications used to treat iron overload. And the third part of this podcast will cover the initiation of iron chelation therapy and maintenance treatment and monitoring for complications of therapy. Iron overload can result from either regular or intermittent blood transfusions or from increased dietary iron absorption that can lead to serious and often life-threatening complications. The patients who are at risk of iron overload include those with hereditary anemia such as transfusion-dependent thalassemia, non-transfusion-dependent thalassemia, patients with sickle cell disease on transfusions, and other rarer anemias such as diamond black fand anemia and congenital dyserythropoietic anemia this guideline does not cover other patients with iron overload such as those with hemochromatosis and other acquired anemias such as marrow dysplasia so thank
1: you so much for that introduction I'm now going to talk about complications from iron overload. But before we talk about complications, it's very important to remember that iron overload complications develop because of untreated iron accumulating within an individual. Each unit of blood gives you about 200 milligrams of iron. And you can easily see that over a year, patients will accumulate a lot of iron. So the complications that patients develop are uh, quite often asymptomatic. Patients can develop a a lot of iron in the liver, which is completely asymptomatic. But once that iron threshold is reached, they will then develop iron overload associated complications in the endocrine organs. And we would be worried about uh, managing complications and identifying complications because of hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism as a consequence of pituitary iron deposition, hypothyroidism, diabetes, which is predominantly insulin-dependent diabetes, and the development of hypoparathyroidism. Other complications from iron overload in the endocrine organs can occur, but they are relatively rare, such as growth hormone deficiency and adrenal insufficiency. Endocrine complications tend to occur fairly early on, but once the uh, iron burden is above a certain threshold, and we define that threshold as being 15 milligrams per gram dry weight in the liver, patients become at increasing risk of developing cardiac iron overload. Cardiac iron overload can present in an asymptomatic way without patients having heart failure. And the best way to identify this is using MRI assessments to measure the amount of iron in the heart. By the time the patient develops symptomatic signs of heart failure, the cardiac T2 star is often below 8 milliseconds. And this is where there is an immediate risk to patients From going into heart failure or from dying from an abnormal cardiac arrhythmia. Therefore, the long-term sequelae of iron overload are endocrinopathies, which are difficult to treat but do not cause an immediate risk to life, or the life-threatening complication of cardiac failure, which can occur once the liver iron is above 15 milligrams per gram dry weight. Monitoring for iron overload is uh, recommended in table one of the iron monitoring guidelines. And this is the table which highlights the frequency of the monitoring test and the quality of the evidence that supports both the test and the monitoring frequency. This should be used when you're assessing iron burden in all patients who are on regular blood transfusion regimes with hemoglobinopathies or with the rarer inherited anemias. MRI monitoring for iron overload should be undertaken to quantify the amount of iron in individual organs. And the organs that we concentrate on are the liver and the heart. Depending on the severity of iron overload in the individual organs, we would recommend that all children by the age of eight should have had their first MRI assessment for both heart and liver. And then subsequent monitoring for both the heart and the liver should be dependent on the severity of iron overload. In patients who have very severe iron overload, we would recommend monitoring using MRI techniques at between six monthly and annual basis, depending on if the iron is mainly in the heart or in the liver. In people with less severe iron overload or even with mild levels of iron overload, we would recommend MRI monitoring every couple of years. I'm just going to pass over now to Siobhan, who's going to talk about the individual iron chelation drugs that we have, along with the uh, side effects and the type of monitoring that is required with these drugs.
0: Thank you, Farah. There are three iron chelating drugs which are licensed for the treatment of iron overload. The first of these was desferioxamine, which was, uh, has been used for several years. Are for treating iron overload and which is administered subcutaneously or intravenously the key to success with desferioctamine is the duration of treatment deferiprone is an oral agent that is given as a tablet in three divided doses and is particularly effective for the removal of cardiac iron deferasirox is a once-a-day oral treatment that has a long plasma half-life. The initial preparations were a disposable tablet, and this has now been replaced by the film-coated tablet, which has better tolerability on the GI tract with less uh, nausea and less diarrhea. Due to enhanced absorption of the film-coated tablet, the dosage need to be adjusted downwards by 07 times the dose previously used for the disposable formulation. Each iron chelating drug has its associated efficacy as well as toxicity, and the treating clinician needs to be aware of the doses, the scheduling, and also for monitoring for complications. For de we are particularly concerned about renal and liver function tests. Prior to the initiation of treatment, Baseline renal function, liver function tests, as well as a urinalysis to assess for proteinuria should be undertaken. And thereafter, urinalysis, renal, and liver function tests should be performed on a monthly basis. This should be straightforward, whereas the patients have their transfusions on a monthly basis. It is recommended that audiometry and retinopathy screening should be performed annually from the age of five. prone has a risk of idiosyncratic agranulocytosis, and the recommendation is that patients should have a full blood count monitored weekly for the detection of neutropenia. At baseline, patients should have renal and liver function tests, and then thereafter, these should be repeated monthly. The recommendations for ophthalmology and audiometry testing for patients on defyriprone, should be undertaken only if it is used in combination with desferioxamine. Desferioxamine is administered subcutaneously and intravenously. In young children, particularly attention must be paid to height because of effects on the growing skeleton. Patients on on desferioxamine treatment should have monitoring of their renal and liver function tests on a monthly basis, And then audiometry and retinopathy screening should be performed annually for those patients over the age of five. For all patients on iron chelation therapy, close monitoring of the for toxicity should be balanced with efficacy. The doses of iron chelation should be adjusted according to the rate of iron loading the current level of iron overloading, which will be detected on imaging as previously described, and for any complications that may occur from iron chelation treatment. Table 2 describes the recommended monitoring for complications of iron chelation therapy. In the UK, the recommendations for commencement of iron chelation treatment should be after 10 to 12 units of PAC red cells, or when the serum ferritin is over 1,000, Micrograms per liter on two occasions for patients with transfusion dependent thalassemia. Patients with non transfusion dependent thalassemia should be offered iron chelation therapy if the serum ferritin is persistently above 800 micrograms per liter or liver iron that is above 5 milligrams per gram dry weight. Patients with rare inherited anemias should be assessed on an individual basis. And iron chelation treatment should be offered if there is evidence of iron overload, such as a serum ferritin, more than 500 micrograms per litre, or a liver iron concentration that is above 5 milligrams per gram dry weight. Patients with sickle cell disease who receive top-up transfusions uh, should be commenced on iron chelation as for patients with transfusion-dependent thalassemia. Patients with sickle cell disease on exchange transfusions however do not routinely develop iron overload but each case should be assessed on an individual basis patients with sickle cell disease on exchange transfusion should be offered iron chelation treatment if there is evidence of iron overload as measured by MRI assessment
1: Thank you Siobhan. Um, so once we start iron chelation, uh, it's important to take into account a number of things. First of all is the age at which you're initiating iron chelation. And this is particularly important for children because Deverisyrox is uh, licensed as first-line therapy for children between the ages of two and six, but in very young children we should not be using deferens So the recommendations from eye inflation for initiation in young children is to use desferioxamine in children who are below the age of two. And you should initiate eye inflation if the ferritin is above 1,000 or more than 100 mils of blood have been transfused, 100 mils per kilo of blood have been transfused, the alternative option, if the family cannot undertake desferrioxamine infusions, is to consider off-label unlicensed deferasirox in that situation. So for children between the age of two years and six years, the first-line recommendation as per the license is But as you can imagine, the vast majority of families will request an immediate switch to deferrocyrox film-coated preparation. If you are using desferioxamine in young children, as Shivan has alluded to, growth is a real big issue in these children. And it's very important that you do not exceed a maximum dose of 40 milligrams per kilogram per day on five days a week. And if you do exceed that dose, it should only be for the shortest period possible, and you need to be very vigorous around monitoring skeletal growth in that situation. d we would recommend is used at a dose of 14 to 28 milligrams per kilogram per day uh, in uh, children uh, who are of this age group. It is important to remember that children have a high rate of transfusional iron loading. Um, They are often transfused between 15 to 20 mils per kilo on each episode, and they are therefore likely to need higher chelation doses. In people who are over the age of six, we would recommend deferrosyrox as first-line therapy, and to only consider using desferioxamine or deferiprone if there are indications that meet those requirements. And again, likewise, for the adult population, deferrocyrox is the first-line recommendation in these populations. Second-line recommendations, if people are either achieving inadequate iron control with deferrocyrox, or have developed iron overload in an alternative site where one of the other drugs may be more effective, need to be considered, and you could then consider using desferrioxamine or deferiprone. Combination therapy using desferrioxamine and deferiprone is highly recommended for people who have evidence of cardiac iron overload or who have severe iron overload in the liver and are unable to tolerate uh, deferrosyrox monotherapy. In that case, you would consider switching to a combination regime. Deferrosyrox and desferioxamine therapy is again recommended as a second line therapy you would be considering this sort of combination therapy in somebody who has side effects but are unable to tolerate one of the drugs at a sufficient dose to achieve iron control. And you are adding in the second drug to help improve control of iron burden. Quite often, these patients are those who have cardiac iron overload but are unable to tolerate the and therefore have to do combination therapy using deferasirox and desferioxamine, as per the evidence that we have from the hyperion clinical trial. And then finally, the combination that you can use a second line, which is also very effective, is the use of deferasirox and deferiprone. That's the two oral drugs in combination. This is, again, a very effective regime in people who have cardiac iron overload and are unable to tolerate desferioxamine as part of the classical combination. Or you can consider using deferrosyrox and deferiprone combination where patients are unable to tolerate one of the drugs alone as monotherapy, and this is being used to help them manage side effects so that they're getting effective chelation
0: over a whole week. Thank you, Farah. We will now discuss the management of iron overload in in complex situations, and the most worrying of these is patients who present with heart failure. Heart failure is a medical emergency that requires input from clinicians who have experience managing uh, thalassemia and also by experienced cardiologists who regularly manage this patient group. Iron overload-induced heart failure is a medical emergency that requires intravenous desferioxamine, at sufficiently high doses, usually 50 to 60 milligrams per kilogram, delivered by a continuous 24-hour infusion. This is often best achieved with an indwelling uh, central venous access device. In addition to desferioxamine, ferry prone at doses of 75 to 100 milligrams per kilogram per day should be added, provided that there is no prior toxicity with this agent. The patients at highest, highest risk for developing heart failure are those with cardiac iron overload, as evidenced by a T2 star less than 20 milliseconds with the lower values carrying the highest risks of development of heart failure. It is therefore essential that these patients have intensification of their treatment, and this could be done in one of several ways. Uh, For those patients on desferioxamine, this may be be with intensifying either the dose and or frequency of treatment and consideration to switching to intravenous treatment and or addition of deferiprone, or deferasirox therapy. For patients on deferasirox, intensification of treatment can be achieved by increasing the dose, as well as assessing patient compliance. One may consider either adding desferioxamine or deferiprone in addition to deferasirox to further escalate um, iron chelation. For those patients on deferasirox, one may also consider switching to monotherapy with deferiprone at doses between 75 to 100 milligrams per kilogram per day if the liver iron overload is relatively low at less than 5 milligrams per gram dry weight. For patients on deferiprone monotherapy, one would optimize the doses to a maximum of 100 milligrams per kilogram per day and consider adding in either desferioxamine or deferasirox. Patients with at T2 T-to-SA of less than eight milliseconds, with a normal ejection fraction, are the highest risk for developing overt heart failure, and these patients should be optimized with intravenous with desferrioxamine, uh, fifty to sixty milligrams per kilogram per day, with in addition to the combination treatment with prone. 75 to 100 milligrams per kilogram per day, the preference is for the administration of desferioxamine by the intravenous route. For patients who are unable to tolerate this regime, combination of desferioxamine and Diferazirox or desferioxamine and deferiprone, as outlined in Table 5 of the guideline may be considered. Arrhythmias, either atrial fibrillation or ventricular arrhythmias may be encountered in patients with iron overload. However, they may also develop in patients without the presence of iron overload. These patients must be assessed urgently with management of the arrhythmia as guided by cardiologists and assessment, urgent assessment for uh, the presence of cardiac iron overload and management as described in the guideline. For any patient with the presence of cardiac iron overload as evidenced by a T2 star less than 20 milliseconds who have either a rejection fraction that is outside the normal range or patients who present with acute heart failure or with a cardiac arrhythmia, the management should consist of intravenous desferioxamine with addition of deferiprone or if the patient is unable to tolerate desferioxamine for combination treatment with deferiprone as well as deferazirox. Renal failure can also be a challenge when managing iron overload. Desferioxamine can cause potential toxicity if the doses are not adjusted, and there's also a particular risk of certain infections. Regimes can include intravenous desferioxamine on the days of dialysis, or smaller doses of desferioxamine in between dialysis sessions, or a low dose of Dforace rox for those patients already established on dialysis. D rocks is contraindicated, however, when the creatinine clearance is less than sixty mL per minute, and doses should be adjusted with a decline in renal function. I will now hand over to Farah, who will give us some important lessons on monitoring adherence to treatment.
1: Thank you, Siobhan, for a a very good summary of managing complex patients. So before we finish with the guideline, I want to highlight um, several really important things around managing uh, these patients who are on lifelong transfusions. Transfusions are lifelong, and as a consequence of this, iron chelation therapy is lifelong. Patients will have challenges with lifelong therapy and will, during their lifetimes, change over from one form of chelation therapy to another. And some of those changes may may coincide with life events, such as planning for pregnancy or planning for spermatogenesis induction therapy. Some of those events where chelation switches need to be thought about may coincide with um, helping support patients with getting a good work-life balance. And some of those may be around improving patients' quality of life, particularly in the oldest group of patients. It's very important to think about where individual patients are within their life treatment cycle And make sure that whatever switches we are making to their therapy are actually helping support that patient to take their therapy better. One of the most important things that we need to ask our patients every time we see them in clinic is how many days of chelation therapy are they actually missing within a few weeks or within a month? so that you get an idea about what the adherence to therapy is like. Once you've gauged what the adherence to therapy is like, then the next most important thing to do is ask the patient why they are missing individual therapies and what the reasons for that might be. Quite often, it's because they're too busy or they've come home and they're tired or they've forgotten because they've been out with friends, etc. It depends on what's going on within an individual patient's life. At that point, you need to be talking with the patient about why they're missing therapy and helping them find solutions for those situations. Every patient needs an individualized solution. One formula does not fit all. And it's extremely important that the patient has the confidence to disclose doses that they are missing when they are talking to you. So our approach to the patient and their ability to adhere to therapy should not be a confrontational type of an approach. It should be very patient-focused and very patient-centred. At the end of the day, this is lifelong therapy. And regardless of which drug I think is best for the patient, it is the patient that has to take the medication and deal with the side effects and deal with their life challenges. And it is beholden on us as physicians to make sure that we're following the right approach for each patient.
0: In summary, iron overload is potentially complex and potentially life-threatening complication for patients with haemoglobin disorders as well as rare inherited anemias. The key to success in managing iron overload is knowledge of the site and rate of iron overloading, knowledge of the best choice of iron chelation treatment for the patient according to the site of iron loading, and monitoring for complications of treatment.
1: So I just want to say thank you all very much for listening to this podcast and I do want to remind everybody that the guidelines are there very much to help you work out what may be the best option for supporting your patient whilst you're organising and treating them for their iron overload. However, I do want to remind you all that in the UK, we now have a very good hemoglobinopathy structure, and any complex patients can be discussed at the Thalassemia Haemoglobinopathy Coordinating Centre multidisciplinary meetings. So please do visit the BSH website and listen to more exciting podcasts.